calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Pandemic is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com pandemic. Book 3 DEFCON 1 Chapter 1 Day 11 It Gets Worse Immunized 65% Not Immunized 29% Unknown 6% Finished Doses en Route 56,503,000 Doses in Production 38,913,000. Infected. 1,488,650. Parenthesis. 10,350,000. Converted. 1,300,000. Parenthesis. 1,689,000. Deaths. 86,493. Parenthesis. 12,250,000. The situation room was starting to stink. Too many meals eaten at the long table. Too many people, not enough showers. Murray had left only to go to the bathroom and to sleep a few hours at a time. For once, the burden of age, not being able to sleep for more than four hours at a time, produced fringe benefits. The rest of the world's infected estimate had surpassed the USA's and was expected to skyrocket in the next few days. While 65% of Americans were now immunized, there was no measuring how many people across the globe had received the Feely yeast strain. The best estimate was just 15% of the world's population. That left 6 billion potential hosts. Blackman slept. While she did, everyone looked to Murray for answers. The disease was the thing, and he knew more about it than anyone else in the room. That meant when Cheng reported in from Black Manitou Island... It was up to Murray to ask the hard questions. The man whose face stared out from the Situation Room's monitor was a far cry from the smug, arrogant ass that Ching had once been. Gone were his illusions of glamour and importance. He wasn't looked upon as a genius that would save the country. The administration saw it a different way. Instead of Ching getting the credit for every life saved, he got the implied blame for every American death. 
Our models predict that 1% of the Chinese population is actually converted. Only 10% is currently infected. Only 10%? Murray echoed. Dr. Cheng, China has 1.4 billion people. You're telling me you think 140 million Chinese people are infected? Cheng looked like he wanted to be anywhere but on this call. That's our best estimate. In two more days, it could go as high as 400 million infected. But by then, at least 100 million of those would be fully converted. Admiral Porter shook his head. Somehow the man never looked creased or sweaty. Maybe he changed his uniform every time he left to take a leak. Four hundred million, he said. That's more than the entire population of the United States and Canada combined. Porter was thinking in terms of an enemy force, which was exactly the right way to think about it. A thousand had destroyed Paris. What could hundreds of millions do? Cities will be overrun, the admiral said. If the numbers get that high, there's no way to get China back under control. Ching licked his fat lips, rubbed nervously at his jaw. I'm afraid it gets worse. His image shrank down to the bottom right corner. The screen now showed a map of China. The west side of the country was colored mostly in light blue, with some swatches of dark blue and a few spots of green. The east side was mostly dark blue with larger areas of that same green. The middle was all a very pale blue, or white. This is a population map of China, Cheng said. The majority of people live on the east coast. The areas in green are more densely populated. Dark blue is still heavily populated, but not as densely as the green. If the Chinese government focuses all or most of its efforts on saving the cities, the sparsely populated area in the middle could provide free range to millions of converted. They could survive for months, if not years. Murray shook his head. The converted won't last that long. They'd starve. It's not like they can go out and farm or something, not without being seen. Cheng seemed uncomfortable, like he was holding something back. Andre Vogel stood. The converted don't need to farm, he said. We just received a first-hand account from a field agent in Baltimore, uploaded before he died. I have images. They are disturbing. Murray waved toward the monitor. We're all big boys and girls, Vogel. Put the damn pictures on the screen already. The map of China faded, replaced by a picture of a dead woman. Murray heard people hiss in a shocked breath heard one man gag. The woman lay face up, staring at the sky. She would have been staring, that is, if she had any eyes. Most of her face had been ripped away, leaving a skeleton smile streaked with rusty red and crusty black. Arms and legs all showed patches of exposed bone. Another dead body, Murray said. So what? Vogel pulled out his handkerchief. The agent said he saw converted consuming this woman. Consuming. Eating. Porter sagged in his chair. The ultimate infantry. God damn it, they don't need to grow food or forage. They eat what they kill. Deathly silences had become a regular occurrence in the situation room. 
Now Murray sat through another one, taking a moment to think. Even if as much as 25% of the Chinese population became converted, that still left 900 million bodies worth of edible human on the hoof. Murray had harbored no illusions about the overwhelming magnitude of this situation, but now an even harsher truth started to hit home. Immunity alone isn't going to do it, he said quietly. We have to find a way to kill these fucking things, all of them, or we're facing an extinction event. We'll be gone. Someone wake up the president and get Margaret Montoya on this screen right now. Chapter 2 Breakfast As impossible as it seemed, Cooper Mitchell slept like the dead, right up until the smell of roasting meat brought him out of it. His mouth watered for a few seconds, then filled with bile when he realized exactly what that smell was. Sophia. He opened his eyes, the people sleeping just a few feet away. Why did they think he was one of them? If they figured out he was not, then he would be the one sizzling over the fire. He was in the small lobby of the Park Tower Hotel. Before everything went to shit, this must have been an opulent place. Marble floor, black stone columns supporting a tastefully lit ceiling, art on the teak walls, and glass display cases full of large, expensive fossils. Now it looked like he'd slipped back in time to when the Neanderthals lived in caves. Wind blew in through the broken glass of the main entrance. It had been a revolving door once, but most of it had been torn away. Cooper guessed someone had rammed a truck through it, then driven off. As you came in that open space, feet crunching on broken glass, to the left were the trash display cases and waist-high windows, shattered, of course, that opened up onto snow-covered Chicago Avenue. He was as far away from those windows as he could get, maybe forty feet straight back, lying on the hard floor with his shoulder pressed up against the lobby's far wall. His new friends had built a fire here. A layer of smoke floated near the ceiling, swirling slightly from the wind that came in off the street. To his right were the remains of the reception counter, much of which had been torn away to keep the fire going. He didn't want to be anywhere near the crackling flames, but the cold wouldn't let him stray far. That meant he had to stay close to the thick pile of hot coals and to the makeshift spit the others had crafted from street signs. On that spit, a naked, sizzling, blackened Sophia, a signpost shoved through her mouth, down her throat, and out her ass. The tall man slowly rotated her. He stopped for a second, raised a fist to his mouth as his body contracted in a wheezing cough. The skin at Sophia's right shoulder split. Juices bubbled out, dripped down to hiss against the coals, sending up a ribbon of steam that rose past her cooking body. She counted on you. You told her you'd save her, and you shot her. You shot her, you coward, you murderer. But I had to. I don't want to die. The skin on Sophia's head had shrunken, cracked, showed some of the white skull beneath. Someone had already eaten her eyes. Empty sockets gazed out. And yet for all the damage, he still recognized her face. Cooper sensed someone coming up from behind. He closed his eyes, pretended to be asleep. If he flinched, if he lost it and started running, they would know he wasn't one of them. 
a hand patting his back, a friendly thump-thump that felt like being smacked with a heavy mallet. Each connection filled Cooper with an eruption of fear. His heart threatened to blast right out of his chest. He kept his eyes closed. Stay still, stay still, don't flinch, don't panic, don't run. Another thump-thump. Cooper couldn't fake sleep any longer. He opened his eyes. It was the monstrosity formerly known as Jeff, crouching down on his heels. Jeff's pale yellow face broke into a long-toothed smile. Cooper came very close to shitting himself. Hey, Jeff, he said. What else could he say? Jeff's horrid smile widened. A gnarled hand reached up. Cooper flinched, knew the bone blade sticking out of Jeff's forearm would punch right through him. But then the pale white scythe pointed to the ceiling. Jeff's gnarled fingers slid across his own scalp, lifted imaginary hair away from his swollen yellow forehead. It was an instinctive motion, one he had made hundreds of thousands of times in his life. But his light brown locks were no more. The fingers barely moved the few strands of hair that clung wetly to his scalp. Monster Jeff rubbed his chest, then his stomach. Cooper glanced around the room at all the others who had yet to rise. Were they sick? If so, should Cooper pretend to be the same way? Jesus Christ, save me, get me out of this. I swear I'll lead a better life. Jesus, please, please, please. The tall man coughed again, worse this time, the convulsion making him double over. Fake it. Be like them. Whatever it takes, be like them. Yeah, Cooper said. I hurt, Jeff. Inside. He looked around at the band of murderous cannibals. Two were asleep. The other three sat near the fire, one sneezing, the last two coughing, just like the tall man was. And those coughs, wet, powerful, familiar. They sound just like Shavo did. Monster Jeff stood, He turned toward the spit, his thick body blocking the firelight and casting a shadow across the marble floor. His left hand reached out, the bone blade stabbed into Sophia's blackened butt cheek. He used the right hand blade to slice at the charred corpse, then lifted his left arm. Stuck on the point of his scythe was a chunk of whitish meat, still steaming and sizzling and popping. Jeff turned, extended his left arm toward Cooper. The hunk of meat dangled inches from Cooper's face. Juice dribbled down to the floor. Eat, Monster Jeff said. For strength. Cooper gagged. In that same moment, he brought his fist to his mouth, hid the gag with a forced follow-up cough. He coughed again, made it as loud as he could, Let everyone see it and hear it. Fake it. Be like them, whatever it takes. Be like them. 
He looked over at the tall man, who was biting into a greasy handful of flesh, chewing. Be like them. Cooper reached out and gripped the handful of hot meat, slid it off Jeff's hideous pointy bone blade. Sophia's flesh came free with a slight squelching sound and another bomb-run pattern of juice. Jeff smiled his long-toothed smile. Cooper Mitchell was going crazy. He knew it. He could feel it. Because only a crazy murderer coward would do this unforgivable thing to stay alive. If he had to choose between sanity and death, he'd wear the straitjacket well. That was the price of life. Cooper raised the piece of Sophia to his mouth. He hoped no one could see the tears that stung the corners of his eyes. Or if they could, that they'd think it was from the coughing. He bit down and tasted her. island in frigid lake superior a fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it ancestor by number one new york times best-selling author scott sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong available wherever you get your podcasts chapter three bat 12 Factories? Blackman said. They're destroying our factories? Nancy Whitaker was the latest bearer of bad news, and her news was a doozy. If Murray hadn't been so bone-tired, he would have felt sympathy for the woman. No question, Madam President, Whitaker said. Four hours ago, CNN covered an attack on a brewery in Bakersfield. After that, the converted started attacking breweries, bakeries, and transportation centers all over the country. The methods are different in each city, so it doesn't look like a coordinated attack. The news coverage must have given them the idea. Blackman slapped the table. But we protected those facilities. We assigned police, National Guard, even what regular army we could spare. From what we can gather, the converted know enough to attack in large numbers. In some places, they overwhelmed defense forces. In others... Whitaker cleared her throat tried to work out the final words. <clears throat> In others, it appears that some guard members and police were converted themselves. Blackman's face reddened slightly. How much production capacity have we lost? Around 60% so far. But the attacks are still underway. We assume we'll lose at least another 20%. Blackman fell back into her chair, as if an invisible hand had gently pushed her. She stared off. Everyone waited. Murray didn't know what she would decide next. She'd pinned America's hopes on high levels of inoculation. The converted were taking that option away. Director Longworth, she said, how bad does this hurt us? Murray wanted to give her something positive, but there was no way to put a happy face on the facts. If our production is cut by 80%, our strategy isn't sustainable, he said. We won't be able to produce enough of Felix yeast. In a week, maybe two, even the people we've already immunized will again be susceptible. 
Blackman sighed. She had moved heaven and earth to do the impossible. With one simple strategic shift, the converted all but wiped out the gains she had made. Director Vogel, she said, what is the status of finding other patients who had the same stem cell procedure as Candace Walker? There were ten patients in the trial, Vogel said. Eight, including Candace Walker, were from the western Michigan area, which is completely overrun by the converted. One other was from New York and one from Germany. We haven't found any of them. We're doing the best we can, but I'm not hopeful. We've put the word out to news organizations. Our best chance is that one of the patients will see the story and contact us. The president nodded just a little, as if to say, that's less than helpful, idiot. She turned to Murray. Is Montoya on the line? Yes, Madam President. Put her on the screen. Murray did. Margaret appeared, sitting at the Coronado's small conference table. She looked better than the last time Murray had seen her. Margaret seemed sharp, intelligent, with a serious stare that rivaled Blackman's best. Hello, Dr. Montoya, the president said. It's good to see you well. Thank you, Margaret said. Truth be told, I've never felt better. Blackman put her hands palms down on the table, made slow circles as she talked. Our inoculation strategy has suffered a setback, she said. We might not be able to sustain repeated dosing of those who have had a first round of treatment. Margaret nodded. I'm not surprised. It was too big of a project to work. I told you to pursue the Hydra solution. You, Murray, Cheng, you didn't listen to me. We didn't, Blackman said. And we're doing everything we can to track down the other hack stem cell patients. I ignored your advice once, Dr. Montoya. I won't do so again. If we can't find those patients, what else can be done? Margaret stayed still, showed little reaction. But Murray had known this woman for years. Her eyes squinted a little, wrinkled at the corners. That only happened when she laughed. Was Margaret trying to hold back a smile at all this? What else can be done? She said, mimicking Blackman's words. I gave you a solution. You didn't use it. Now it's too late. There are no other options. It's over. Blackman's demeanor darkened. So you've given up? You, the undefeatable Dr. Margaret Montoya, you want us to just roll over and die? Margaret shrugged. 99.9% of all the species that ever lived on this planet were extinct before our ancestors even discovered fire. Extinction is the rule of life, not the exception. Humankind doesn't get a special exemption, Madam President. Blackman's lips tightened into a thin line. Dr. Montoya, I find it hard to believe God would let his greatest creation be snuffed out. You religious types have a saying, I believe, Margaret said. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Extinction occurs because a species gets outcompeted for territory and resources, or just gets eaten. From observations and the reports we have so far, the converted are faster, stronger, and more ruthless than normal humans. Murray noticed that Margaret had avoided the phrases evolution and survival of the fittest. Maybe she didn't want her message to get lost in the details. The rest of the situation room seemed to fade into the shadows. 
Somehow, this had become a battle of wills between Montoya and Blackman. The converted can't win, the president said. We've got the weapons and the technology. Margaret held up her hands, wiggled her fingers. The converted have these, just like we do. They can use the same weapons we use. And our high-tech tanks and planes give us an advantage only as long as there is gas to run them, places to repair them. Once the fuel and bullets run out, Madam President, this fight will come down to knives and spears and rocks. If that happens, humanity will lose. The President's hands curled into fists, fists that pressed down on the table. The Predator's gaze tightened. At that moment, she hated Margaret Montoya. You are wrong, Blackman said. I have faith that we will find a way. The wonderful thing about science, Madam President, is that it doesn't ask for your faith. It just asks for your eyes. In a week, you'll be looking at three quarters of a billion psychopaths spread out across the world. Even the most powerful army on the planet can't handle... Margaret's words trailed off. She blinked, raised her eyebrows, shook her head a little. Murray had seen her do that before, too. Margaret did that when she'd been lost in a train of thought and wanted to come back to the present. Sorry. Listen to me, Madam President, please. You need me there with you. I know we can find a way to beat this thing. I'm clean. I'm immunized. Fly me to D.C. today, and I'll be by your side. That was the best idea Murray had heard all day. Cheng's fat ass could stay on Black Manitou. Margaret was right. The real brains of the operation belonged here, in the Situation Room. Andre Vogel suddenly stood up, fingers pressed to his earpiece. Madam President, we just received actual footage of one of the larger forms. Blackman nodded quickly. Dr. Montoya, we'll get back to you shortly. Margaret started to say something, but Vogel cut her off. The monitor flashed with low-resolution video, black and oversaturated white, typical output from the cameras on combat aircraft. This is from Manhattan, Vogel said. 72nd and Columbus. Manhattan is cut off, Blackman said. Didn't we blow all the bridges? Vogel nodded. Yes, Madam President, we did. A Pavehawk helicopter was collecting reconnaissance footage and captured this. The image on the screen looked slightly fuzzy the signature of a camera pushed beyond its range. Still, Murray could easily make out a mixture of five to ten-story buildings, the red brick and tan concrete so common in New York. Two people ran down the middle of the street, cutting in and out of burned-out vehicles that littered the pavement. Farther back, a dozen others gave chase. It was recorded, Murray knew that, but he silently willed the two front-runners to move faster. More people poured out of doorways, alleys, some even from the interior of vehicles. They all joined the pursuers. The pack swelled to two dozen, then three, then four. The distance between the hunted and the hunters shrank. Vogel paused the playback. The next voice you hear is the Pavehawk pilot. He let the video continue. The pilot keyed his mic, filling the situation room with the scratchy sound of the helicopter's engines and rotor. Command Bat 12, I have two civilians being pursued by hostiles. Request immediate permission to engage. Negative, Bat 12. Came back an even scratchier voice. You don't know who is healthy. 
I can fucking see it, said the pilot. There are these things in the pack chasing them, things that aren't human. The image zoomed in on the pursuers, in the cluster of blurry, sprinting people. Murray saw something that was bigger than the rest, much bigger. Vogel paused the playback. On the screen, a hideous, out-of-focus creature was hurtling a Toyota. Shredded clothes, sickly yellow skin, a head and neck so big they made its face look disproportionately tiny. It carried some kind of long blade in each hand. A wide-eyed blackman slid a hand into a pocket. It came out holding a gold chain, swinging slightly from the weight of a dangling gold cross. Jesus Christ! Satan walks among us. Let it play. Fogel did. The picture whipped back to the hunted. Murray saw that the woman had something clutched to her chest. A baby. The pilot spoke again. Command, the woman appears to be carrying a child, moving to engage. Negative, Bat-12, said the second voice. Do not engage. Bat-12 apparently wasn't interested in listening to orders. Right and left guns, engage the targets chasing the woman and child. You're cleared, hot. The image vibrated slightly as the Pavehawk's guns opened up. Long streaks of white shot out, slammed into pursuers, cars and pavement alike. Some of the pursuers stopped moving, some scattered sideways, but most continued the chase. Among the crowd, Murray saw tiny flashes of light. Hostiles are returning fire, the pilot said calmly. Where the hell did they get all those guns? The helicopter kept firing, but there were too many pursuers. Others came pouring out of doorways, cutting off any escape for the two. No, the three hunted people. There was nowhere left to run. The mob closed in from all sides. The man, woman, and child vanished beneath a quickly growing pile of killers. Vogel switched it off. The ever-increasing numbers of infected, converted, and dead took their normal place on the screen. Blackman stared. She scratched a right eyebrow. The situation room filled with another familiar, long silence. All those guns, she said. Where did the converted get all those guns? Murray laughed. He choked it down instantly, but he was so tired he couldn't help the reaction. <laughs> Sorry, he said. Madam President, we are the most well-armed nation in the world. There are a quarter billion guns in the United States. The converted didn't have to look far. Millions of guns. Millions of converted. Millions of armed insurgents. Could it get any worse? As if on cue, Admiral Porter leaned forward again, a phone still pressed to his ear. Madam President, I regret to inform you that we have word from Fort Stewart and Hunter Army Airfield in Georgia. They each suffered coordinated attacks by a large number of converted and... He paused, swallowed. And significant numbers of soldiers stationed at those facilities assisted in the assault. Blackman's gold cross dangled. Reinforcements, she said. Let's get them help. What do we have in the area? Porter shook his head. Fort Stewart has fallen, Madam President. So has Hunter. Both facilities are now in enemy hands. 
The 3rd Infantry Division was stationed at Fort Stewart. That division has been destroyed. And we've also got word that Andrew's AFB is under organized attack. Murray's body sagged. 3rd Infantry, the Rock of the Marne, a unit that had fought in both world wars, in Korea and Iraq, over 15,000 soldiers, completely wiped out. And Andrew's AFB, where Air Force One resided, under attack. The base also housed the 121st Fighter Squadron, an irreplaceable asset. But far more important than the base's aircraft was its geographical location. Andrew's AFB was just 12 short miles from Washington, D.C. You have been listening to Pandemic, book three of the Infected Trilogy by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.